Hello and welcome to your Over the Farm Gate podcast brought to you by Farmers Guardian and the CLA. We're your hosts for this week. It's me, Farmers Guardian editor Ben Briggs. And me, Farmers Guardian news editor Olivia Midgley. Don't forget, we'll bring you a new episode of the podcast every Tuesday. Subscribe through all your favourite platforms, whether that's Spotify, Google, Apple, Stitcher or Acast to ensure you stay up to date with new episodes. In this week's show, and hot on the heels of the publication of the National Food Strategy, led by restaurateur Henry Dimbleby, Ches Fredenberg has been speaking to leading food expert Professor Tim Lang from City University in London to get his views on the long-awaited document. With food security around the COVID-19 pandemic being so topical right now, has a strategy addressed this, and does it give us a clear idea of what needs to change in our food system in the future? And later, it's part two of Jez's interview with Rich Clothier, farmer and managing director at Wyke Farms in Somerset. Rich joined us last week to give us his insights into exporting cheese to more than 160 different countries. Well, this week he talks about what we can learn from the Irish on exports, his top tips for export success, and which country he wishes we had a trade deal with. At Bayer. We're here to support your farming business through every season. This autumn, our team of weed control experts are sharing the latest insight and advice to help you get better control of blackgrass, ryegrass and brome. Search online for Bayer Critical Advantage to find out more. So, last week, Henry Dimbleby unveiled the National Food Strategy. Except this wasn't the root and branches cross-sector strategy we had all been waiting for. Instead, we were told that would come in part two, which leaves us with part one, which is a response to the pandemic and the end of the Brexit transition period. This has fallen into two main sets of recommendations. Number one, around how to prevent more children going hungry as unemployment and poverty increases in the pandemic. And number two, around how to maintain food and farming standards as we fully leave the European Union at the end of December. So how does part one fare? Will it help our food system cope with the pandemic and our trade negotiations maintain standards? To dig deep into this, I'm joined by Tim Lang, Professor of Food Policy at the Centre for Food Policy, City University in London. So, Tim, this is obviously not the big assessment of the food system that Henry Dimbleby originally took on. This is just part one. We're looking more at um, the urgent urgent need of how we cope with the pandemic and the end of the Brexit transition period. What were your initial thoughts when you looked at the set of recommendations? Well, I'm someone who's read a huge number of official documents. The, the critical issue is this isn't the report that we expected. It isn't what we asked for two years ago. It wasn't what the government and the country needs. Um, it's an opening statement and, and it does a good job. Uh, rightly, I think, um, Mr Dimbleby, um, for whom I have respect, I should say. So I thought this will be a serious job. The problem is it's been put into two parts. The really important bit is yet to come. And it's been pushed back to beyond the date when Britain will be in a totally uncharted waters. So it's not providing the national food strategy. Let me be very clear about that. Uh, but, and this is a very good but, the but is that he has taken notice we're in 
quite a big crisis from public health. COVID-19 has disrupted and changed and discombobulated the food system. There are those who argue it's been a great success. There's not mass famine in Britain. I am not one of those who shares that view. Eight million people in, in poverty, the rocketing of food poverty, the loss of jobs, the destruction of the food service sector, which is what it is. So this is a report basically about where are we in the middle of this crisis. And it does, I think, and indeed I urged him to do this before the COVID-19, that the number one crisis is food poverty and food inequalities. He tends to take an old-style Tory view, which is this is a problem of disadvantage. It's not. It's a problem of inequalities. There's lots of money in Britain. It's unequally distributed. But... It is terrific that he has made recommendations to increase the amount of money going to people on low income, on benefits, to extend the school emergency feeding systems and so on. Those recommendations are good, so I think it's to be welcomed. Um, uh, but it's not delivering what we really need yet. He's flagging, I think, too much trust in the Agri-Trade Commission. Frankly, uh, a trade commission with no trade experts, no public health experts, no consumer specialists, no environment specialists, it ain't going to resolve and provide the detailed uh, uh, dispute resolution advice that we need to have from a trade commission. But, I repeat, overall, I think this is an interesting job. It's laying down a marker in the government which is all over the place and not providing the kind of direction farming and food needs. He's putting down a marker to saying this space is really important and we're going to have to address it. That's great. But I have to say, the, the lie that keeps being said that this is the first report for 75 years is a lie. There was a process after the banking crisis and commodity crisis when food prices, world food prices doubled in 2007 to eight. There was a process when the then Labour government, equally complacent about food, as this government is, the present government is, decided it had to do something. And for three years, there was a meticulous economic consensus building, planning, consultations, all the things that Henry Dimbleby uh, has been asked and says he will do. All of that happened and a fantastically detailed strategy emerged in 2010 for the Conservative government, coalition government, to come in and abolish it all. So actually, this is only the first review for 10 years and we've had 10 wasted years in the middle of a Brexit crisis. But I keep on coming back to it. I welcome it. So, Tim, I just want to jump in on trade now, because the strategy recommends that the Trade and Agricultural Commission come up with a group of core principles, statutory core principles, by which trade negotiations should abide by in terms of food and agricultural standards. Secondly, it also recommends that it be made a statutory duty for government to properly assess every single trade negotiation in terms of food and farming standards, and that Parliament be given proper time to scrutinise that deal. Do you think that those recommendations together will ensure that our standards are maintained and they're not undercut by imports? 
Do I have confidence? Short answer, no. Um, look, Britain is leaving as a, a bunch of academics I work with. We produced a report three years ago, three years ago last week, actually, where we laid out uh, uh, about 17 major issues facing Britain from Brexit. Uh, we look one just one of those is that Britain has completely lost um, uh, about thirty three scientific based institutions which underpin food and let me just tell you starkly and I know people on the Agri Trade Commission this is not an organisation that can deal with it it's short term it hasn't got the expertise and even though there are seven farmers out of sixteen people on it and the NFU's infrastructure is there. I'm sorry, that doesn't replace the European Food Safety Agency. It doesn't replace the veterinary medicines infrastructure. It doesn't re um, replace the, uh, um, the access to huge infrastructure of research to which Britain contributed. And we haven't got the institutions set up to replace all the ones that we've just left. So do I have confidence? No. Um, have we got to do it? Yes. Um, is the Agri-Trade Commission the vehicle for doing it? No, it's a short-term life. It's been done as a political fix. Uh, and uh, uh, it hasn't got the right membership. Uh, but I'm an optimist, despite the evidence. We've got to sort it out, unless you want to consign 67 million people to bad food, uh, casualised um, labour, um, uh, incompetent labelling infrastructure, lack of uh, food safety and regulations. Uh, we've got to sort it out. Uh, so we'll have to. So Britain, having been known for pragmatism, is actually having to deal with things in crisis. This ain't a good place to start off trying to work out a rational um, uh, food policy. But, I repeat, we are where we are. I'm an optimist that if there are people like you, me, talking, uh, uh, these issues at least have come up on the agenda. When Eric Millstone and Terry, Millstone, uh, Terry Marsden, two academic colleagues, and I wrote the first papers on chlorine-based chicken and hormone-fed beef and raised the whole issue about food standards, uh, people said, what on earth are you talking about that? Now it's in everyday cartoons. People have got it. But it's only a little tip of the iceberg. Antimicrobial uh, 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 resistance is one of the number one public health hazards on, on the global health scene at the moment. Farming has been one of the drivers of that. We, if we want to import foods from the US, they use antibiotics on crops. What, who's going to look after that? Where's the expertise going to deal with that? It's not on the Agri-Trade Commission, let me tell you very starkly. Um, so there has to be something really serious engaging between Food Standards Agency, the Environment Agency, uh, all sorts of uh, weak, underfunded institutions have got to be ratcheted up and something very big has got to be put in the place very fast. And note what I'm saying, Jez, that's just one issue facing Britain uh, over food standards and um, uh, the future of position. And that's not giving guidance inside Britain about what we want from our farmers. So I'll give you my 10-second version of what I say to ministers. Horticulture. The problem is horticulture. Until Britain actually doubles, quadruples its horticultural sector and starts using good land to produce food direct for people, we ain't going to be in a food-secure position. And we're going to have to do that, uh, not for food security reasons alone, but for biodiversity reasons. We're importing food throughout this 
uh, COVID-19 crisis from areas uh, which are water uh, difficulties, southern Spain. We're actually being fed by Europe still. It's not been uh, the food industry has passed the test in this crisis. It hasn't even really been tested, actually. Uh, but having said that, extraordinarily good things have gone on amidst the devastation of, I think, the cack-handed government destruction of the food service sector when it could have been switched towards um, community feeding. Uh, a, a lot of hill farming entirely depending on the lamb export trade. Well, what's going to be dealt with about that? That's still not being resolved. The whole weapon of tariffs, the politicisation of tariffs, God, that's not taking back control. That's putting food into even more difficult and uh, uh, political uh, shenanigans than we've been in the European Union. So we're in very, very cold and choppy waters, Jess. Very cold. But horticulture, much more attention than agriculture, please. So, Tim, how do we how do we get to that point? You know, does it need to be um, does government need to have more muscle in this? Does it need to be a cross industry thing? What what needs to happen to get to that point, do you think? Two reflexes kick in to answer your question. One is the British imperial reflex. We've got to unpick that imperial legacy of assuming others will feed us. I've heard cabinet ministers said, oh, we don't need the European Union. Uh, we can get our food from West Africa. Really? Why is West Africa feeding the rich when it should be feeding Africa? You know, there are some very big ethical and political points. And is it risky to have that happening? It's basically going to where land and labour are cheap and not saying, OK, what do we want for our food system? And the other reflex is what I call leave it to Tesco et al. The, the government doesn't need to do anything, just leave it to the powerful boys and girls in the food sector, which is the retailers. And if you notice, they're the people who've gained in the uh, COVID-19. The government basically smashed everyone else and said, um, uh, you, you get on with it. And they did get on with it. And to be fair, they've dealt with it. Uh, but they've dealt with it with ruins everywhere else. And they're doing very nicely, thank you. Um, so we've got to deal with things like that, Jez. These are very big, long-term cultural reflexes. But the good news, as I point out in my Feeding Britain book, um, is that actually there have been counter-moves to all of that. People have Europeanized. They've got to see they want nice food. They don't want food as, I, as it was in my childhood in the 1950s. I'm old. When it was brown, Britain was known as brown. All the books and reports were about the catastrophe catastrophe of, of British food and how it didn't need to be like that. Uh, and we've done that well. We're, the British have started educating our palates. It's been extraordinary and wonderful, actually, to witness it. Uh, we don't want to let that go, but we don't want to do it by just saying, oh, well, we'll just raid the world and carry on doing that. Actually, we're in a time of climate change. We're in a time where water calculations are going to be critical. We're in a time where the seas are in a dire situation. You can't just say eat two portions of fish a week, one of which should be oily. You've got to say where from, please. Uh, and all of those issues have got to have something called the state providing that infrastructure. So you can't leave it to Tesco et al. You've got to have government. That is why we have governments. And you've got to make it democratic. You can impose it. You know, a country, Qatar, an authoritarian, Emir-led country, has a 
set of sustainable dietary guidelines. It sees it. It's in a desert. It's in water. It knows it's got to feed these things. OK, you can impose it if you want to, but I don't think Mr Johnson or Mr Gove or, or Henry Dimbleby would want to impose it. So you've got to have a democratic process to it. The good news, getting back to the National Food Strategy, is Henry Dimbleby was and that strategy was going to be having citizens' assemblies, citizens' juries, etc. COVID-19 has killed most of that. So we've got to do it in different ways. There's got to be some democracy to it. There's got to be accountability. There's got to be a debate about it. So, Tim, I just wanted to ask you about what Henry Dimbleby said to journalists when presenting the National Food Strategy. He said that having seen how the food system had reacted to the pandemic, um, you know, to keep everybody fed, um, that a no-deal Brexit, if that happens, would be a cakewalk in comparison for the food system. What, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's a very rash statement he's made. This is unknowable and unknown. Um, and it's a fool, frankly, in policy analysis who says everything is going to be a cakewalk. Uh, we don't know. There are lots of considerations. There may be short-term OKs and long-term not-so-OKs. Um, it depends what you analyse success as. Um, this government's uh, success, and Henry Dimbleby is showing there he's part of government, not independent, um, uh, they just say it's all going to be fine. This is bluster, actually. We know it's not as simple as that. Do I hope we can sort it out? Yeah, of course. I don't want my country uh, and my fellow citizens to have suffering from it. But COVID-19 has been a disaster. We've got massive unemployment in the food sector caused by it. We, we had the biggest horticulturalist G's in Britain having to hire private planes to jet in Eastern European labourers. And we then get labourers in, in Herefordshire going down with COVID-19 because they're in conditions which are bound to spread a disease if there is a disease anywhere near. This is not a cakewalk. This is not a cakewalk. So... Having seen part one, Tim, how confident do you feel about part two and the idea that it will take a real, you know, root and branches approach to the food system and the complexity of it? I've said I, I have a lot of time for Henry Dimbleby. I think he's a decent chap. Uh, but frankly, this is not a time just for decent chaps. This is a time when we need structural analysis. We need serious engagement right across the piece. We need to not just have responses in policy which are trying to deal with a farmer-led crisis, which I fully understand and I supported it. Indeed, I urged the NFU two, three years ago to get into this space. Uh, uh, this is a time when we need absolutely meticulous analysis and structural assessment of what the problems are and where we go. I have confidence that they are taking note of this, but they're negotiating a political problem. The national food strategy has got both arms tied up behind its back. It was told it can't really go into the trade issues, but it, I think he has in, in number one, which I think is good. He should tell them, frankly, get off this terrain. You can't talk about food in a country which imports about 50% of its food. Depends how you calculate it. Uh, you can't talk about a national food strategy till you resolve a very big question of do you want to grow some of your own food? And that's critical. And then the second question is, what sort of food do you want to grow? Do I have confidence it'll enter into the terrain? Yes, I do. Um, but you'll probably detect in my tone of voice, I always have reservations till I see it. I've read too many reports. I've seen too many great 
uh, strategies emerge only for them to be sidelined. And I'm worried about this one being sidelined by trade on the one hand and Brexit on the other hand. And the Brexit not dealing with the fundamental problem, which is England. Uh, the critical issue, for example, is, is Britain going to have a regionalised food strategy? I've urged that in my Feeding Britain book. You cannot resolve the problems of UK unless you actually equalise Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and the regions within England. How are we going to do that? That requires more than food strategy, but I think food can lead it. I think we can have bioregional food strategies. I want it to get into that sort of territory. But to answer your question again, do I have confidence this will deal with it? This part two will deal with it? I'm an optimist despite the evidence. Britain's in a bad place and we've got to sort out our food system very rapidly indeed. We've turned food from a good into a bad. It's been a leading cause of biodiversity damage, leading cause of public health problems, leading cause of social dis uh, inequalities, uh, and yet there are some good things that are going on within culture, within the economy. We've got to nurture and explode the good things and be daring and constrain the bad things. So I'm, I'm hopeful part two, Jess. The Orflex Sense Hub cattle monitoring system helps you maintain a healthier herd and increase the number of calves born, putting you in control with live heat detection and early health alerts sent direct to your phone 24-7. Simple to set up and operate, Sense Hub takes the guesswork out of beef and dairy herd management and saves you time. For further information, visit shop.orflex.co.uk or simply search for SenseHub UK. That was Tim Lang, Professor of Food Policy at the Centre for Food Policy at City University in London. Now, continuing on the trade theme, last week we talked to Rich Clothier, farmer and MD at Wyke Farms, one of the UK's largest family-owned cheddar makers. Rich talked openly about how he started exporting and has grown his exports to 163 countries. He said exporting wasn't nearly as complicated as people made out and encouraged other farmers to look at those opportunities. Rich had so many great insights that we thought we'd do a Rich part two. So here he is talking with me about different cultures, what we can learn from the Irish on exports and his top tips for export success. Whenever I talk to you, Rich, you seem to have a very lateral way of thinking and you're, you're very, um, you always have a lot of interesting insights into people and societies, I think. Do you think to be able to do sort of exports really well, do you think you have to be someone who can, you know, who's interested to get under the skin of how different societies operate and what different tastes are, how demographics are changing and more kind of sociological aspect of things? Yeah, I think that's I, I think that's a really interesting thing, and and people are different in in all areas around the world, and you have to be excited by that, and we're excited by that as a business, and excited by the opportunities, uh, of, you know, opportunities that are brought about by the fact that people are people are in those regions, such as India and, and the other Asian countries, They're, they are on a voyage of discovery. You know, they do want to try 
um, products from all around the world now in a way that they wouldn't have necessarily done. You know, and in many cases, that you you have people in those regions that are the first generation to travel outside the country. So, um, you know, you see market development opportunities in those regions you know, that are parallel to what we would have seen in the middle of the last century. So, yeah, it is, I think it is really exciting. But I think that um, none of us as food producers can do that on our own. You know, the government has to create the right, the right backdrop um, and be supportive and adopt an export mindset to be able to help um, food businesses in the UK to make that happen because there, there, there's some really good examples of um, countries that export really, really well around the world and the government is very, very supportive and works hard to create the right environment for businesses. Which countries are the ones that, are, that do it really well then? In, in our sector, no one does it better than the Irish. Hmm, OK. What do you think we can learn from the Irish? They're very, very good at relationship building in all the regions around the world. And they're very, very good at diplomacy and not upsetting people in, you know, some of the regions. So um, dealing with customers abroad is no different to dealing with customers everywhere. Sometimes you have to, you know, deal with people that you you know, that you don't like or whatever. And that's why I get slightly frustrated sometimes when I see one half of the political elite trying to poke the Europeans in the eye and then the other half of the political elite trying to poke Donald Trump and the whole of the US in the eye. And I think to myself, oh, my goodness, these are our two biggest markets. And that's not necessarily the way that I would be looking to create the... Um, right environment for us to export regardless of whether that's food or anything else and and adopting an export mindset is about you know trying to build bridges with everyone I think the Irish just do that so well and they also put the budget behind it as well you know if you go to any of the trade shows they have big areas of the halls booked out, ready to get all the small producers there as well so that they're, they're out there and they've set up stall and they're ready to do business. And they also convey their green potentials really well through, um, through Origin Green and some of the other um, missions that they've got. So it's a well-organised sort of cohesive approach. Mm. And we used, to, we used to be good at diplomacy. <laughs> we used to be world-class at diplomacy. We did, and, you know, food from Britain were hugely helpful to us um, in the late 90s because one of the things that about export is there's a lot of front-loaded investment. You do have to put a lot of work down before you can take orders, and sometimes it can take... You know, from when you first start, it can take two years from where you sort of start work in a region to when you take the first order. And one of the things that can help speed that up is um, export grants and paying for tastings and things like that in, in regions. So it takes some of the risk off of buyers when they list your products if they know the government's going to help support tastings in the stores to drive growth and things like that. So those are areas where... You know, we've seen some great help from government in the past. And, you know, and I think there are areas that are going to be really important post-Brexit for government to try and help to stimulate exports in regions and 
especially in the EU, where we might be paying tariffs. So, Rich, in, could you give us, in one line each, like three of your biggest pieces of advice for farmers looking to do exports? You know, what are the, the three take-home messages that you've learned? Um, collaborate wherever possible. Talk to as many people, the Department of International Trade, and try and attend a trade show with the products and get them out there to um, to enable you to sell them. That's uh, I think that's the key thing. And but before before you do any of that, make sure that you have a simple, cohesive range that you can present in visually in you know to people of all languages. I think that's the you know, that's one of the starters to get your, to get your products and your brands into good shape and um, get some nice photography done and that sort of thing so that you can present it in a, in a really easy way so you've got a toolkit to, to go to battle with. I like that to go to battle with. That's great. <laughs> what about, um, I asked um, Phil Hadley, this HDB, I said, Phil, what's your, um, your, your kind of your big one, big country or region to watch, you know, in the long-term future? What, what do you think that is for dairy products, Rich? A lot of people disagree with me, but I think India. I'm really excited by what's going on in India. They're a bit, they're a country that, already eats I mean it's one of the biggest dairy regions in the world already they eat lots of cheese and milk we're going to see as I said before 300 million or so people joining the middle classes in that region it's one of the biggest economies in the world if you could wave a magic magic wand and get a trade deal with anyone I would want one I would want one with India because we're just seeing the seeds of of some really exciting sort of growth happening out there. China's obviously really, really exciting as well, but I think from a meat point of view, China's more exciting, I think, than dairy, than, than, than for dairy, whereas I think India could be really exciting. It might take, a, it might take 10 years to get to where it can get to, but... Um, I always think that if you can be there early, then that's a really good advantage. Africa's overlooked quite often. Massive population, um, huge growth in wealth in um, different regions, loads of investment from places like China going into Africa. So, um, you know, India may be closely followed by Africa and some of those key African countries if if you can trade in them. Great. Well, thanks, Rich. That, there's a lot to think about there. India and Africa wants to wants to um, keep an eye on and um, and South America as well, Jess. So probably everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. Oh gosh, <laughs> is this how you got to 163 countries, Rich? You're like, well, everywhere. Yeah, and it's probably why I'm saying I should be focusing on doing more volume in the in the ones where we already are. <laughs> yeah. CLA members own or manage around half of the rural land in England and Wales and run more than 250 types of businesses. The in-house professional advisory team offers members independent and impartial advice on every aspect of land ownership and during this Covid crisis the CLA has never been more important to landowners of any size. To find out more go to www.cla.org.uk. Thank you.
Thanks, Jez, and to Professor Tim Lang and Rich Clothier for all that fascinating insight. Now, it's back, and it's bigger than ever. 24 hours in farming. The industry's chance to shout about the great people, places, and ingenuity that define British agriculture. And in 2020, that's more important than ever before. COVID-19 has brought with it a reawakening amongst the British public about the importance of farmers and food production. And 24 hours in farming, taking place on August 6th, is your chance to reach out to a receptive audience about just what it is that you do. And with Morrison's on board as our lead supporter, hashtag Farm24 is a fabulous opportunity to explore that field to fork journey, celebrate the people who have kept the nation moving in this extraordinary year and all the wonderful facets of British farming. So whatever you're doing this Thursday, August 6th, whether that's milking cows, harvesting cereal crops, sorting sheep, running the farm office, or even just being outside, enjoying our stunning countryside, please share your story on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or your favourite social media platform using the hashtag Farm24. All the information you need is at fginsight.com forward slash 24 hours in farming. And we look forward to seeing you on Thursday. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast platform to keep notified of all the new episodes of Over the Farm Gate. We'll be back next Tuesday. But from us at Farmers Guardian and the team at the CLA, thank you for listening. We hope you stay safe and well. Goodbye for now.